gentlemen, this is an important message from the New York City Police Department. If you see a suspicious package or activity on the platform or train, do not keep it to yourself. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Hey everyone, I'm Amadel Yakbar and this is M-Train, a podcast miniseries by See Something, Say Something and Brick Radio. The series focuses on New York City and features Muslim stories from around the metro area. For episode two, we're bringing you our live show debut from January. So the panel kind of focuses on this current Muslim political moment. Um, you know, we have Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, but on our panel we have a mayor, we have a city council candidate, we have a political consultant, and, you know, some interesting things have definitely happened since um, this panel was recorded. For instance, there was this story coming out of the Iowa caucuses that Bernie Sanders had registered five new mosques as primary sites, and they almost exclusively went to him, or at least in a dominating fashion. Um, and, you know, Super Tuesday is coming up in a week, so we'll see how things go. Um, but for now, just take a listen to this live show from January. Before we go on, we did say that this episode was going to be an episode about Caribbean food, but due to a production snafu, that uh, episode has been delayed a little. Also, there's some issues with the microphones in the live show. Um, please excuse any audio quality issues. Hello, everyone. I'm Amadali Yakfer, and this is See Something, Say Something's M Train live miniseries from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. Give it up for Brick. Woo! So, this week we're showing the world the first live glimpse of this collaboration between See Something and Brick. Um, the M Train miniseries, which you'll be seeing on your See Something, Say Something podcast f- feed soon is really a perfect mixture of our work and Bricks. For our first live debut episode, we have some amazing guests with us today. We wanted to really reach out to the community and sort of like have an engagement with some of the folks who are really shaping our political future here in America today. Um, and I'm so excited for all of you to meet them. Okay, so joining us today is Shahana Hanif. She's a Brooklyn-based Bangladeshi-American Muslim organizer running to represent District 39 in the New York City Council. And she's also an activist and community organizer. Thank you for joining us, Shahana. Thank you. Also joining us today is Sadaf Jaffer. She is the mayor of Montgomery uh, Township in New Jersey and the first Muslim woman to serve as a mayor in the United States. <laughs> Woo! Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. She also holds a PhD from Harvard University, if that wasn't enough. And lastly, we're joined by Mohammed Missouri. He's executive director at Jetpack, an organization which trains American Muslims to run for office. And Mohammed has also spent several years in Massachusetts po- politics. Thanks for joining us, Mohammed. So obviously that's just their bio, but I kind of want to get the o- let the audience sort of know who these people are and what their work is. So I wanted to give them an opportunity by directing a question to each of them. We're going to try to have a conversation, but in the beginning I want sort of you guys to give us a sense of who you are and uh, like where you come from and the communities you represent. So for Shahana first, you're running for city council and your background is in community organizing. So what were the stories from your community that you're really trying to present that you felt were not, not, uh, not presented previously on city council? That's a great question. And I'm going to start off by sharing that I was born and raised in Kensington. And it's in southern Brooklyn um, and the largest Bangladeshi enclave 
in the borough of Brooklyn. And I began organizing formally at 17 when I was diagnosed with lupus, which is an autoimmune disease, life-threatening, degenerative. And at 17, when I was diagnosed, I was completely immobilized, and uh, the treatment was so aggressive that it had left me bedridden and disabled. So as a result of that, I've had to, got, I've had to get both of my hips replaced, with plastic and ceramic pieces. I've gotten my left shoulder replaced, so I'm in pieces now as, as a cyborg. And that also feels special, because I don't think we talk about Muslim cyborgs enough either. <laughs> we, totally it, true. It, totally we don't talk true. about that enough either. And during that moment, I saw the lack of care spaces, too. And then I took my organizing um, to public housing, where I organized public housing residents um, living at Queensbridge primarily, where there's a growing enclave of Bangladeshis and other Asian immigrant communities, and really demanding not just better living conditions in public housing apartments, but also demanding better language access right. so that immigrant communities were getting information in the languages they were comfortable in. And I saw the, the critical opportunity and the urgency to organize in multiple languages. That the only way we're gonna go towards freedom is not in English. It's gotta happen <laughs> in a bunch right. of languages. And so the level of uh, social justice work and political education work that needs to happen in these languages is where I'm at right now. Right, and there's obviously like a huge Muslim population here in New York City that is in many ways not represented by the people who are in our government. Completely, um, and like language access is, is one component of it. We've got the census coming up and, and I just peeped some materials in Bangla that just was not readable at all. Right, right. Um, and Sadaf, of course, is, uh, you know, uh, recently elected uh, mayor of Montgomery Township. And of course, you made a pivot as well from academia. You had written in your name first, and that hadn't worked out. But I want to know, like, the second time around when you uh, successfully ran for mayor, when you were knocking on the doors of your local community, how did you convince people, like, this is, uh, y you made a lot of changes that I think a lot of people might not be aware of. There's a whole lot of other parts of your story that I think are really interesting that you should share with us. Sure. Well, I think that local politics is really an important element of our political system. And unfortunately, especially when it comes to immigrant communities, they tend to be focused on national and international issues, and for good reason. But I don't think that we have really harnessed the power of the local. And so, frankly, after the Trump election season, when we were trying to figure out what happened, what, what, what went wrong, and why it seemed that liberal ideology was really on the retreat all over the world. I happened to be attending a, a panel at Princeton where I'm a postdoc, and uh, it was about the crisis of global liberalism. And they were talking about how liberals as well tend to be so focused on national and international issues, and that's why so many of our local governments, so many of the state houses, um, had gone to the Republicans. I'm a Democrat, <laughs> um, in case you didn't know that. So, you know, when I thought about w how could I be of service to, to the people and to the party that I think is a better option, uh, I thought 
and I learned about how really poorly the U.S. ranks in terms of women's representation in politics, I realized I couldn't just expect other women to do it. I needed to also step up myself. And um, I participated in a program called Emerge, which is for women from the Democratic Party who are interested in running for office. And that formal mentoring and formal mentorship and training programs are absolutely essential for underprivileged or minority communities. And so that program gave me the strength to to take that step forward and run. When I ran as a write-in, as you said, I was asked to run. Um, there had been no Democrats running in my town for four years. It was an all-Republican uh, committee. And basically, my message to the people in my town was, vote your values. And I'll just give one example of that, of that hope that I found through this process, uh, that I set up a Facebook page for my campaign. And I you know, had my platform, or th these, these, these are the things I want to do. And one gentleman said, well, politicians, they always promise you the moon and the stars, and they don't do anything. So I'm like getting nervous and gearing up for this argument or something. And I said, well, sir, you know, I don't know what your perspective on politicians is, but really, especially at the local level, we're just your neighbors right. trying to represent you. And I thought he would come back with some sort of an argument, but instead he was like, oh, thank you for getting back to me. That makes a lot of sense. Good luck to you. So, Turns I mean, out, yeah, yes. Killing him with kindness exactly. is actually surprisingly Engaging good. With internet with commenters, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Engaging with people is really, it, it does work. Right. And... Mohammed, you worked with uh, State Senator uh, Jamie Eldridge for many years, but you've made this shift now where you're with Jetpack. A lot of people here might not know of the work that Jetpack does, but it's b really making an impact on getting American Muslims into office. Can you talk about what made you make that shift and some of the work that Jetpack is doing? Sure. So uh, the work ties into what both Sadaf uh, and Shahana are talking about, which is we want to create a mentorship space for American Muslims who want to run for office. So what we do is we have a training program because for a long time for our community that didn't really exist. And the training program is simply just providing people with the you know, A to Z of politics. Everything you need to run for office, including media training, how many doors you need to knock on, how much you need to fundraise potentially, what's your win number. Very boring stuff, but very essential to win elections. And then you know, how to talk um, how to build relationships, how to talk to constituents and you know future constituents. Uh, so that's kind of like th that's where that work is, and it's similar to emerge, only it's you know targeting or trying to help American Muslims and um, and allies of American Muslims. So I think one thing that's worth also like pointing out here, which is very fascinating, is that about um, twelve people ran in 2016, and uh, in 2018 now over a hundred people have. Ha ran in that election cycle. That's like a really amazing shift. And there's also this huge shift towards, I think, also the Democratic Party. So I kind of want to like briefly talk about what we think the um, sort of Muslim voting bloc as it m moves forward really looks like, especially in our local communities, because as, you, as we've all mentioned here, kind of like the, lo the national conversation, the local conversation is a little bit different. Yeah, I think definitely there's been a huge shift, um, especially after 2016. The, the the numbers of people who wanted to run just skyrocketed. I mean, I can tell you, Jetpack, it, we got you know hundreds of requests of people saying, "Okay, train us. What does that entail?" And um, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, why do you think people? Why do you think more American Muslims are running? And it's like more so than anything else, more American Muslim women are running. You know, it's, that's what's so impressive. It's like really taking on the challenges from 2016 and saying, well, we need to run for office. And oftentimes when I ask people when they come in, why do you want to run? One of the first things they say is, 
I can't be on the sidelines anymore watching as this is happening. You know, this didn't happen overnight. People recognize that. It's, it, it was years in the making where someone gets elected who is very openly hostile to our community. And it's not as if the two parties haven't been hostile before. This is, you know, this dates back a few decades now. But this was very overt for the first time. The dog whistles were gone. It was very direct, right? And so people just want to run. They understand that the only way to really defeat Islamophobia is by just being in office, being visible, and they recognize that the, the people in their you know, orbit, essentially, who are the least Islamophobic are the ones who know them. And so they go, okay, well, if I'm visible and uh, people see me and they hear me talk about all these different issues, housing, transportation, fixing potholes, if you're you know, local, um, they'll understand you know, we're just like anyone else. So. There's that real drive to kind of be represented um, and to be, you know, to just run for office and, and be the voice that we all need. And after Ilhan Rashida, it's, you know, it's even better because, you know, those two in there in Congress, the highest, you know, one of the highest offices you can run for, it's, it, that makes things easier too. So we have this clip that we pulled, which feels like eons ago from 2015, which was like kind of in some many ways like Islamophobia was like boiling under the, you know, the surface and it came out in, in very violent ways at times. But this was like a real moment prior to the election of Donald Trump in the run up and the run up where Ben Carson showed up on Meet the Press that I think we should just go back and watch. Should a president's faith matter? Should your faith matter to voters? Oh, well, I guess it depends on what that faith is. If, if it's inconsistent, uh, with the values and principles of America, then of course it should matter. But uh, if it fits within the realm of, uh, of America and consistent with the Constitution, mm -hmm. uh, no problem. So do you believe that uh, Islam is consistent with the Constitution? Uh, no, I don't. I do not. So I, I would not advocate that we put a Muslim in charge of this nation. I absolutely would not agree with that. So I think this is one of the challenges, right, of, of running and putting Muslims in, in office is that a lot of people feel that the faith might be in uh, contradiction to American values. How do we sort of, you know, how are, how are the two of you who are like experiencing this, that there's a lot of folks who might feel that way, what are some of the ways in which you are trying to, you know, change their mind, even when it feels like, you know, like we're, we're American, we've been here for, you know, a long time? I'll just say from my experience, I ran for office not thinking about being the first of anything. And then once I was elected, some of my supporters were saying, oh, wait, there hasn't been a South Asian woman who was mayor in New Jersey before, you know, I, you're the second in the country. And wait, there hasn't been a Muslim woman that's mayor. We should do a press release. And I was like, maybe not. <laughs> maybe let's I'm not so do that. I'm so interested in that because um, I feel like the first thing is such an interesting thing, it right? Is, it's such a blessing and a curse. But frankly, it's, it is scary. So when I ran in 2017, the local Republican Party published uh, flyers that said, South of Jaffer's ideas are dangerous and extreme, and those were the biggest things, and those were the dog whistles, and literally, we installed cameras at my house. Like, it is scary, because you are just a person, and it, it just takes one crazy person to come after you. The Star-Ledger had an article about it, and then some Trump-related blogs uh, had negative articles about me. And that's when I started getting a great deal of kind of vitriolic messaging on Twitter, things saying, you know, Muslims should be wiped off from the planet, and I wish you death and illness to your family and things like that. So um, it's, 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 it is very disturbing what we're seeing. And 
uh, it is a responsibility of the politicians at the highest levels of our government not to encourage hatred, but unfortunately they are. When I won my seat, um, the first comment on the Republican Facebook page from my town was, I was born in this country and some Indian's gonna tell me what to do. So this, and this is a guy who does live in my town. So that was his perspective there. I ended up meeting that man at an event and he shook my hand. He was totally normal. I mean, basic. He looked a bit sheepish. But it just goes to show you <laughs> Well, he that, probably should. Yeah, I mean, in person and connecting, it's the fact that people can sit behind screens that is just allowing this vitriol to kind of grow. So meeting face-to-face -face is really the most powerful thing we can do. Right. And I guess I wonder, like, what is... what like how we can try to move past that as well and like try to, you know, not also, I don't want to focus on it, but mm -hmm. I feel like it's, it's, it's not great to also ignore sure. it, you know? Shahana, how are you yeah, experiencing I that mean right now? Islamophobia isn't the only Muslim issue. Mm -hmm. Right, of course. Um, and it's wild that everywhere I speak, I get asked first about, well, what about Islamophobia? And will your people vote for you? And I'm like, when you talk about my people, are you just talking about Muslims? Like, I think we really need to broaden the way we think about Muslim women running in communities that raised us. Kensington raised me. And I've been a part of the fold of Kensington and other parts of Brooklyn and New York City organizing. So we've seen an uptick in Muslim hate crime and anti-Semitic violence and Organizing has held our communities together, making sure that neighbors are rallying to protect and build on community safety precautions, um, responding and making sure that 911 isn't our go-to. These discussions are being had on our blocks. I live in an area where there are five mosques bordering Borough Park, the largest Hasidic community in in the nation. And it's important that we're, we're looking to build ties with one another. I come from the side of uh, community organizing where I just didn't think electoral power was it. I was like, you know what? The only way uh, to make sure that we have safer infrastructure is if our people are, are organizing for it. Um, without seeing the connection to electoral power or policy making. I do, I do feel like that's been a major shift that I've seen. Yes. Like that there's, there's also, there was like a wing of Muslim American organizing that was sort of very much into like, you know, uh, like get in the room first and then, you know, sort of like have your voice heard, do, do the, you know, the pack thing. That's like a lot of what Muhammad's work is very much about, is about sort of how do we, y this moment in which there is like a growing Muslim voices actually in our political landscape. How are we going to do some of this coalition building that Shahana has pointed out that, you know, we're, we're not, it's not just, you know, Islamophobia is not the only Muslim issue. There's a lot of other issues we're interested in. How does Jetpack and your work, you know, sort of uh, position itself there? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to your original question, which is about, um, you know, when people ask you, or actually what he was asked, Ben Carson, um, does Islam jive with the Constitution, right? And the, the answer really is yes, because Islam is rooted in justice. It's rooted in equality, and you know, that's like part of the, those are some of the pillars, right? So I think you know, what we do is we focus on issues locally. We work with a lot of people on um, ending mis mass incarceration. We support Medicare for all. We support policies that essentially help people's lives uh, you know, 
get better and make sure that everyone is treated with dignity. And those are the relationships we build. So, and that's really important because again, those are all Muslim issues. I think as a community, we're trending definitely more to the left on policy. Uh, and it's that, by the way, is cross-generational. And I think as far as like, how do you deal with um, Islamophobia? Well, I think for me, there are two things, right? No matter what you run on, I mean, Saraf, what, what was your dangerous platform? What, what were you trying to accomplish that Republicans thought was super dangerous? <laughs> it was literally like we need to have community building. Right. And <laughs> you know? we need to yeah. lower no. traffic. You know, we need to yeah. make our community more it, convenient. It doesn't matter what you run on. They're going to call us a bunch of names. And we know what those names are. So you ignore, the, you ignore it in the sense that you keep focusing on the issues you care about. At the same time, though, you have people, surrogates, supporters, make sure that this is called out because it is dangerous. Like it is legitimately dangerous and it's not just upon us to stop it. It can't just be on American Muslims to say, hey, you know, this is really dangerous people. Look at us, we're not, you know, we're from here too. It has to be on everyone around us. We need a community conversation about bias, about Islamophobia, about, you know, anti-Jewish crimes, about, you know, anti-black crimes, because that's all on the rise since 2016. Well, I was thinking about this question and I think about it a lot, which is how do we combat all the Islamophobia? And the conclusion that I've come to is that there is this industry, there is, and, and others have come to this as well, that there is an industry that's churning out misinformation about Muslims and Islam for their own benefit. And they will publish books, they will have radio shows, they will put so much content out there. And the only way to combat that is to put out content that's actually factual, that shares our stories. And you know, I really commend you for the work that you're doing and I'm proud to be here as a part of that process. When my campaign was attacked, the advice that I got, and I think it was the right one, was don't respond because they wanna throw you off. So don't go by their messaging, just continue on with your messaging. And that's what I did. And I think the community appreciated that because a lot of people might not even have seen their negative ad, but the more attention I bring to it, that just gives them more, more of a voice. Those are just some of the things that, that I think about like on a daily basis of how to combat all this negativity. And, um, and I think we just do it by putting out positivity. Right. And also it's a question of how to show up for other communities, I think is also like something that we should really grapple with and um, should be a priority. I mean, one of the really fascinating stats that I always turn to when I think about this demographic shift is how Muslims went at the beginning of the century to really kind of being a very low number, like 25, 26% supporting um, the right to for uh, gay folks to get married. And now it's a simple majority in this in this current day and age. And that, that I think, I, that never felt possible growing up. And I think it really shows like that there is this idea that like our civil rights, our rights as people are tie in intimately tied into the struggle of other people. And I think uh, Shahana, as an organizer, you also are, are, are very, very aware of that and have worked on that a lot. Also bring in some other voices as well. Can you tell us a little bit about like some of the more, some of the like disability justice stuff you do? I think that's like a super interesting thing that you have really put as part of your platform in a way that you're, you're trying to put that out there. I launched my campaign four months ago as a first-time candidate and as someone who, yeah, prior to this candidate life, did not see anyone else around me running, mm. or even if there was training, um, I still did not know anyone elected who looked like me or whose values represented me to the core. Um, I've seen this exchange happen with my community, with 
white electeds or electeds who have convinced us that they could get us what we need. Um, so there's a lot of firsts. And one of the things I've been prioritizing is disability justice praxis in my candidacy because I have survived lupus um, because of how severely this disease impacted me and recognizing just how hard it is to navigate our healthcare system and how easy it is to trust any healthcare practitioner around, here's the meds, here are your 35 medications that you gotta take um, to go into remission. I mean, I had no uh, Muslim protagonist to lean on to right, around right. the bionic Muslim superheroine or <laughs> the cyborg Muslima or just anything. Um, and so Shahana with Lupus became my outlet to one, talk about the gaps of the city and city's health services um, that pertain to myself and also my parents, because I was thinking, they're my caretakers. Like right now, I'm fully dependent on their care. I've got to live in this house and make this house livable. So there's just all of these issues that tie in um, with the coalition building, because for me, I've seen how I've been impacted, and people with disabilities are not coming out to the rallies. We're organizing online, so a, a, the starting point of my work was digital organizing and finding people living with disability online and talking through just how core disability justice is to addressing all other issues, whether it be housing, transit access, working against workplace harassment, adding extra sick days, um, just a life that is worth living in this city that makes it so hard to live. Mohammed, I want to hear also a little bit about like some of these new candidates that are coming out. You know, can you give us like, you know, Shahana is a very exciting candidate, but what are some of the other folks that you're seeing popping up in the in the national level, like not uh, at every level of trying to run for mayor, city council, sure. or state rep? What are some of the folks that we're seeing knock on Jetpack's door? You're making me pick between like the people that I all There's love. There's over a hundred of them really, apparently. That's so. really hard. No, there there are a lot, and it's it's from a wide range of honestly uh, of uh, backgrounds, which is which I think is fascinating. Some are immigrants for sure, but like you suggested, Sadaf, a lot of people aren't. And um, you know, the interesting thing for me is is simply just like they have similar uh, reasons for running in terms of like just that core reason of running. But you know, I think the majority are women, and I and I love it. I think it's amazing that it's just so many different women, because Muslim women I think face even more discrimination than Muslim men. And seeing them like just be the leaders of this movement and being part of this trend nationally of like, like uh, Shahana was mentioning, people aren't just organizing anymore, they're running for office, which is really important. It's something that started in 2016. I think that Bernie Sanders' campaign definitely inspired, but then in 2018, it just took off completely. And we're in a just awesome space right now where people are engaged. I mean, we've obviously talked about Bernie Sanders, but I think we should also name, and we've name dropped them, but we could spend a moment talking about Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib's like historic win. And, um, I just think it's like really interesting to see like the way in which they have been on the forefront of that um, progressive movement. And we also have like a very powerful Muslim woman politician here I think that is also like dealing with this like idea of the first right um, we alluded it to it earlier but I kind of want to know like what like more a little bit more about how we can um, challenge that as well because it sounded like you just you kind of like push it off and like I want to know a little bit more about why you decided to you know sort of focus more on your campaign 
I think over time I've seen how important it is for people to see my example. And so I want to go out there whenever I'm invited by a South Asian community or a Muslim community event because I want to be that person that I needed to see when I was younger. And it's something that Shahana mentioned that it is, you don't realize that lack of not knowing anyone mm -hmm. from your background right. who's represented, but it closes off so many possibilities for you. There was a mayor's gathering for mayors within my congressional district that our congressman, um, Tom Malinowski, hosted. And I got there and I was the only non-white person there wow. in the entire room. And it does feel lonely. You know, it, you want to see a difference. You want to see a change. And so I think I've been a bit nervous around those being positioned as the first, but I've come to embrace it, especially because I know what it means to people. But I hope that what it translates to is more people from diverse backgrounds in all of these uh, positions of power and authority. Yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is extremely important because you, you bring up the point that every other community, like when we talk about the establishment, right, in politics, why does that exist? And why, you know, are, why do you go to a mayoral, you know, gathering or whatever, and it's like only white mayors? Mm -hmm because those people have the connections that you need, right? They're right. like, but that's what, it's, it's important for our community that more people run regardless. Right. Win right. or lose, you run. Right. And also, I mean, I think it's worth noting that like it, of, of our um, elected Congress people who are Muslim, we had, you know, two black men first elected, um, Keith Ellison and Andre Carson, and then we have, you know, S Somali refugee woman in Ilhan Omar, Palestinian woman in Rashida Tlaib. It's really just like not any candidate, one candidate can't really represent the Muslim vote. You know, especially, you know, like black Muslims, one in five um, Muslims in America is black. And, you know, th there's, there's a real sense in which I think we have to encourage everybody to run and, incur and be very careful about how it's very useful for us to see people who look like, look like us. But there's, that's, su that's such a broad category for American Muslims. And I, and I think that's like something we should increasingly be talking about when, we, when we're um, shaping the conversation, as I, as I know you all, you all do. I mean, obviously, we've discussed like, a huge range of different ways in which Muslims can get engaged. But like, what about our broader networks? Like, what are some of the ways in which you'd like to see Muslim civic engagement and political engagement sort of change in, in the upcoming years? The first thing I would say is complaining on social media is fine. It's, it's a good place to vent, but that's not going to make the change. If you really have changes that you want to see, call your representatives, whether it's a local issue or a state issue or a national issue, email them, ask for appointments with them. Research shows that American Muslims are the lowest in terms of religious groups, in terms of their engagement with their elected officials. These people are there to represent you. So definitely go and, and demand that from them. Uh, also, uh, please apl apply social pressure on your networks to vote because research has also shown that that works. If you text or call or email at least 10 people, but even more than that in your network and you say, tomorrow is election day, please go out and vote and please make it a habit to vote in every single election. In our town, we have elections every single year. Um, so we need to make that a habit. Um, and I would say, yeah, third, research also shows that uh, women and minorities need to be asked three times to run for office. So mm. everyone listening and everyone in the audience, this is one of those times. Please consider running for office. This is a new era of the civil rights movement. And until people like us in this room run for office and get on the inside and push back, we're not going to win. So not only in the streets, not only with legislation, but also you run for office. That's how you fight and win. Thank you so much.
it really can make a difference. You get to make decisions that impact your community. Uh, as a mayor, I'm, I get a lot of influence and power over a $37 million municipal building that we're constructing and how is it gonna serve our community? How is it gonna incorporate history, not just of the European uh, you know, colonial past, but also indigenous, communities, also recent immigrants. So all of that is, is a power that I have in the position that I'm in. So uh, those are the three things that I would recommend. Of course, you know, this suggestion to run for office is huge. And I think, you know, we have somebody with a lot of great experience in that uh, sitting here on this panel. Mohammed, what is sort of your advice for people who are, you know, maybe young and non-establishment uh, trying to break into politics where, uh, you know, th there might not be such a clear path? My first advice is always don't listen to all the consultants that are gonna essentially target you the second you announce because they're gonna come, especially the establishment ones, and they're gonna give you establishment advice. I think when you're an outsider or a political newcomer, what really works is just, you know, what Sadaf was talking about earlier, which is focus on your community. Like actually just go out there, talk to people, knock on doors, host community meetings. Uh, don't be afraid. I mean. It's, it's really terrifying to run for office because it's a very you know, vulnerable thing to do. Um, you, you do become a public face, and so people feel very entitled to come up and tell you a bunch of stuff, sometimes negative stuff. Um, don't listen to a lot of people who will just feel that they can just give you unsolicited advice because that advice may fit for like, you know, a generic candidate. Right. You're not a generic candidate. You right. are who you are. Believe in you know, your story, your message, and talk about what you want to see. And then, you know, don't be afraid of that. Like, don't be a apologetic about your beliefs or, you know, your values. Run on those values. Um, and, you know, just like be humble enough to learn too. Like if, you, if something doesn't work and you're learning something, it's okay to change. Right. And I'd like to hear from the other two, two who are experiencing it right now and being in political office. Let's think what worked for you. What were some of the strategies that you used, Sadaf, that, you know, kind of helped you deal with all the complexities of sure. this campaign? Well, I definitely agree that you should trust your gut. Um, and no, only you know what is acceptable to you, what, why you're in this process. So again, yeah, I, I, when some people said I should focus on fundraising, that I felt like that wasn't really necessary. Uh, in my town, I kind of worked backwards from how much funding I needed to do the mailers and the ads that I wanted. Um, so I ran it the way that worked for me. I had a lot of um, community meetings where I had people host their friends and neighbors to meet me because that sort of mediated connection was a space that people could feel more comfortable where we could bring in people who maybe didn't really usually vote or really understand the local government. Um, so community meetings for sure and going out and meeting the public and then harnessing social media. And Shahana, what are, you, what are you learning during this process? You're still in the thick of it, I know, so probably it'll take a while to you know, think about that, but wh where are you at right now? So for me, you know, I'm not running a traditional campaign, and that's important, and, and I'm, I'm glad that Mohammed raised this, that there are, there are consultants or people who are like, don't put out a message like this, or don't put out a graphic like this. Um, and if you go on my Instagram, and, and we put out a recent post about how much I raised. We had a filing disclosure that just passed, and the background of this image is a money wall. And there was an internal debate uh, within my team, like, no, that's too, that's too much, that's too extra. And I'm like, 
this is me though. And also we did damn well. Um, and I should have fun. I should have fun and I um, am a creative uh, before I even uh, call myself a political. I'm a creative who wants to see campaigns run as authentic as I am. Um, and also outside of just electoral politics, I mean, yes, we're in urgent and, and dire times, but take time for yourself. Cultivate deep friendships. It is far too important, because sometimes those rallies, those actions, and constant like needing to do work to change uh, the scope of national politics is tiring. It means that our bodies get sick quicker. And so recognizing that care and wellness are important. And friendships and cultivating deep, lasting friendships is important. Um, dating is important. It's important. Some of the aunties the and uncles work, might not be happy yes, about that. The personal that. is political. <laughs> um, and it is, it is critical that while we're engaging in this, sh in, this, in this beautiful moment of electoral power building in all of our Muslim communities, that we are also seeing a rise of creative work, that we are building and, and putting together uh, art shows, and plays and performances, because all of these need to come together. We all don't need to be elected officials. It's interesting how you, you know, kind of pointed out that there's like a room for lots of different kinds of work. And I think obviously running for office feels like a big one. So let's, let's broaden out the conversation a little bit and talk about like, what are some of the work that you see happening that might not be like elected officials, but movements we're seeing uh, within our community that are worth, you know, recognizing and, you know, also supporting. I mean, I think one of the things we have to mention is, uh, and this makes me happy every single day, that we have you know, re reporters like yourself, truthfully. You know, that's like a real thing. We've got real reporters now, actually people who are writing for the Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, New York Times, right? Like, that really matters. Having people in, in newsrooms and edit, you know, ed like editorial yeah. boards, not that we have any of that, but it really matters. Like, it changes the conversation. It allows people to write about a very different perspective. And then we've got Hassan Minhaj, which, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's just, you know, that alone is we've won. All right, let's get into it, look. Tonight, I wanna talk about the 2020 election. Now, I know it's a year away, but candidates are starting to reach out to key minority groups because they know we matter. <laughs> it's pander season, baby, you've seen it. <laughs> Hillary dabbing, Trump with the taco salad, Ted Cruz making matzah. Come on, what's next? Pete Buttigieg drinking from a paper bag with Jesus and Miro? <laughs> oh wait, that actually happened. Those are things that can't be overlooked, frankly, because it, it changes everything. I, I remember growing up and thinking, I wish there was something like this on TV. Like just fantasizing about the idea of having someone talk about politics and, or just society and you know, aunties and uncles and all these different things, just like on, and explaining it to, you know, to my friends, so I didn't have to explain it. That's why we can't keep waiting for politicians to speak to us. If we do, we'll never be listened to. We'll only be pandered to. And personally, I don't wanna see Pete Buttigieg eating a samosa in Jackson Heights <laughs> on an elephant. You don't gotta do all that, man. Just focus on the issues we care about. And maybe, 
Just let in one of our cousins. But it's interesting that he doesn't always explain. And that's he also a, a strategy that I've employed as a journalist is you don't always define your terms if they are easily Googleable, right? Yeah. Like something like halal, for instance. Yeah. That's like a common thing that I'll often say is I'll have my commenters and my post being like, why, what's halal? How do you, you know? But it's like, it's, it, it's part of also this, this community building is that we also have to expect people to come to us too. Like we can't give it all away without expecting the work from other communities as well. So that's kind of, I think, a, a challenge that I often think about when I'm doing this work. But it's true that we have this massive platform that's like, there's a lot, m there's an increasing, you know, um, Muslim voice in, uh, in pop culture. However, it's often dominated by men, <laughs> which is also another, another challenge, I think. I sometimes think, you know, sometimes you get that question that if, if there was no bar, if you could be anything in the world, what would you be? And I think I would be a novelist. So I am really so glad that there are those creatives, that there are people writing stories, because stories really change hearts and minds. If we want people to understand the Muslim experience, we need those storytellers to be sharing those stories for our communities and also for others. So I'm, I'm so thankful for the creative work that's being done. And, you know, I think I'm just thankful for, for Muslims making it through every single day based, uh, you know, in spite of all of the challenges that we're facing in, in, in America, in other parts of the world. And uh, I, I totally agree that we have to make that time for ourselves. It seems really daunting and it's really difficult, but, you know, people have gone through a lot of horrible things in history. And I, I just draw, I draw strength from that, that if, you know, generations of people could experience slavery and yet still keep fighting and overcome and succeed in so many amazing ways, then we can get through the, the challenges that we're facing. So the elected official isn't the response uh, to the needs and the completion of movement work or people's liberation. And it's critical to understand that because city council member term is four years. Um, and with the bureaucracy of how the city operates, that's very little time uh, to push the needle on trying to improve roofs on school buildings. That's just one example. Um, but so an important one. An important one. Very important, important one. one. And I'm excited I to take to that on. I used to teach in a classroom where the roof was leaking in yeah. Detroit, so that was a horrible excited, experience. It's an exciting moment for me to be like, listen, school construction authority, bring us the roofs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's critical to, to remember, but that doesn't negate the organizing work that needs to continue forever. Because we've seen over and over that um, Muslim women are at the front lines of organizing, not just Muslims, but our communities on pressing issues um, in different languages and facing different types of, of harassment and um, patriarchal woes uh, that we need to respond to. We need to respond to while doing the work. Um, so having that, that uh, creating that legacy of feminist visioning and future in our cities as well. There's just so much, so much happening right now and I just want to make sure that we don't just lean on the electoral elected power as the response, like we elected you, how, when will you fix us? No, we're all a part of the system and we need to be working together on our multifaceted vision. Let's thank our panelists, please, for sharing their amazing work and being on the forefront of something really amazing. I'd also like to thank all of you guys for coming out and being uh, engaged here.
you can find the audio versions of this episode, which is going to be have all you guys laughing and clapping in the background. And we're also going to have five other episodes that will feature different stories of Muslim life in New York, not just politics, you know, food, uh, religion, death, all sorts of interesting things. It's been a pleasure to work with everybody. Let's also give a thanks to our crew who has been, who has done such an amazing job. Look at this amazing event they've put on. And we will see you all after the show. Thank you so much. M-Train is a six-part audio series hosted and produced by me, Amadal Yakbar, and Shireen Barghi. This episode was also produced by Brick Radio producer Emily Bogosian. Big thanks to all the folks who helped out with the live show. The show is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham and Sasha Mathias. Follow me on Twitter at RadBrownDads. Follow See Something, Say Something on Twitter and Facebook at See Something. And follow Brick Radio on Twitter at Brick Radio. This episode featured music composed by Mira Al-Rahim and from Freesound. It's also made with the support of the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Arts Building Bridges Program. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio. See Something, Say Something is also on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com slash Big thanks to our patrons like Stacey Murray Ishmael, Malice D, Mo D, Remy Carroll, and Mustafa Nusrati for supporting the show. I'm Amadel Yakber. Thanks for listening. Mira, mira, pyaar amar, 